So this morning I want to share a message that's really been on my heart for some time. It's not going to go through, like Matt said, from 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to use those verses, but we're going to go through the Bible and we're going to look at quite a few verses, particularly in the New Testament. We can often think of the Bible as a manual for life, with a list of do's and don'ts and rules and regulations, how to do things, how not to do things, what to do, what not to do. And in some respects, there can be a truth in that. But the Bible ultimately is a story. I think it's a love story. It's a story. It's a love story that reveals the heart of God and his plan of salvation to restore relationship back from his creation that has gone away from him to himself. And we often call this restoration, this, this coming back, we call it, um, we call it the gospel. And it's the gospel that when applied to every area of our lives, both in thought and action, will bring about in our lives the fullness that God desires. So if you want a heading for this morning, it's applying the gospel to all of life. Jerry Bridges writes this, The gospel is not the only most important message in all of history. It is the only essential message of all history. Yet we allow thousands of professing Christians to live their entire lives without clearly understanding it and experience the joy of living by it. I believe part of the problem is our tendency to give an unbeliever just enough of the gospel to get him or her to pray a prayer to receive Christ. Then we immediately put the gospel on the shelf, so to speak, and go into the duties of discipleship. As a result, Christians are not instructed in the gospel. And because they do not fully understand the riches of the gospel, they cannot preach it to themselves nor live by it in their daily lives. Incredible statement, but it's a statement I believe that is true. As we've often said here, the gospel is not just the door by which we enter into for salvation by, but it's the house that we live in. So this morning, I want us to see how we can apply the gospel to all of life. Now, obviously, this is a huge subject, and um, we haven't that many hours this morning uh, to to cover it all. But I trust that in looking at some of the principles that are work in Scripture, we, as a result, will be able to grow in our application of the gospel and be able to ourselves connect the things that I want us to see connection this morning. Mike Bournemouth, who I'm so indebted to, to Mike Bournemouth for really bringing this kind of truth to, to my understanding a number of years ago, uh, which I've greatly benefited from. He says, The gospel is not just the beginning of our faith, but it is the source and core of the rest of our Christian lives. There exists a biblical paradigm that illustrates the functional centrality of the gospel. First, there is the gospel itself, that Jesus died for our sins, which is theologically theologically central. If we allow it, the truths of the gospel transform our thinking. Thus, by believing these gospel truths, the gospel will bear fruit in our minds. Beyond this, beyond bearing fruit in our minds, beyond affecting our thinking, beyond this, as our minds are transformed, our actions and behaviours flow out of these truths and our actions become a witness to the gospel. From this paradigm, 
there are both implications and opportunities to follow. And that's what I wanted to look at this morning. I believe one of the most important needs of the Church of Christ is the application of the gospel to all the areas of life. And so to live in the good of the gospel. To connect the message of the gospel to our everyday lives, in our thinking and in our conduct. And I have a few more quotes, so we'll get rid of the quotes a bit later. But uh, Tim Keller says, The gospel truth is radically opposed to the assumptions of the world. But since we live in the world, we have embraced many of the world's assumptions. Christian living is therefore a continual realignment process, one of bringing everything in line with the gospel. So before we go on to that, let's be clear what we mean by the gospel. We don't want to just treat the the message of the gospel as the in phrase, the in slogan that we, we want to come to. Greg Gilbert in his book, What is the Gospel? I thought, oh, this is good. Going to get some really good understanding, clear, concise definition of the gospel. In trying to answer it, he, he lists a whole range of um, explanations and definitions of the gospel. A variety of expressions, but all, in essence, centering on the last. That is the way to understand every paragraph in the Gospels. Jesus' commandments are not mere snippets of wisdom of how to raise your family or how to prosper in business or how to feel good about yourself. They are descriptions of how new human beings live who have been born again by God's Spirit and have seen the glory of his Son, Jesus Christ, and have recognised the desperate condition of sin they are in and have ceased to trust in anything about themselves at all for acceptance to God and have turned wholly to Jesus and all that God has done for us in him and all God is for us in him. If the Gospels have not had that effect on you yet, you will probably misuse all the commandments of Jesus. At the very heart of the Gospel, we read in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 3. Perhaps you'd like to turn to that. 1 Corinthians 15. I'm just going to read from 1, verses 1 to 3. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I, I remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in faith. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Sorry, I went on to verse 4. The heart of the Gospel is encapsulated in these five words that we read here. Christ died for our sins. If you want to teach your children, Christ died for our sins. Five words. Let them see that on the hand. Christ died for our sins. Those five words express the reality of our sins, the divine punishment, and Christ's substitutionary death for our sins. And Paul says this is of what is of first importance. 
just notice here as we read that, Paul speaks about the gospel in which you stand and by which you are being saved. The gospel has not only saved us past tense, but continues to save us. In Romans 1, Paul speaks of being set apart for the gospel. The, the, to Paul, the gospel is of prime importance. This is what is important to him, that Christ died for our sins. So this morning I want to see how we can make the connection of the gospel to our everyday lives. First of all, I, I want to talk about truth shaped by the gospel. And then I want to look at behaviour motivated by the gospel. In understand, answering these questions, we need to first understand the difference between gospel truth and gospel behaviour. Mike Bullmore says, Gospel truths are specific, concrete, doctrinal implications of the gospel, whereas gospel conduct or behaviour is the connection that the Bible makes between the gospel and our behaviour. So I want to briefly look, first of all, at truth shaped by the gospel. There are many, many truths in the, in the New Testament that are shaped and founded on the gospel. And just by looking at three this morning, I hope we'll see how we can establish these truths and doctrines in our hearts that have been shaped by the gospel. Making these connections will help us to renew our minds and to conform our hearts and our lives to the scriptures. As I said, there are many examples throughout the New Testament. We're just going to look at three. So this is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to go through a number of different scriptures. So we're going to bounce around, around the scriptures this morning a bit. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1. Paul states, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're talking here about our truth shaped by the gospel. Notice the logic of the verse. Something follows, something comes from the essential truth of the gospel. Our having peace with God is not the gospel itself. But it is a powerful implication of the gospel. It's a gospel-shaped truth. The gospel truth that we have been justified... The implication, that's, that, that's the gospel, but we've been justified. The implication of that truth is that we now have peace with God through Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel, we have been justified by faith. That's the gospel. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the implication, it's the connection of the gospel to gospel truths which are not necessarily the gospel in and of itself. An understanding of this gospel truth is part of conforming one's thinking to the glorious gospel, to, to see that as a result of being justified, we can have peace with God. Peace, let me, peace with God, reconciled to God. You know, we might still find ourselves in anxiety at different times. We might find ourselves not feeling very peaceful at times. But if we've been justified by faith, we have 
now peace with God. We've been reconciled to him. We've been redeemed. We've been adopted into his family. We have peace with him. The second one I want to look at is Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, notice the argument. Paul is not here presenting the gospel itself, but something that is true now because of the gospel. For those who are in Christ, this is the gospel, there is now no condemnation. The gospel is those who are in Christ, those who are born again, those who are part of the family of God, those who have been saved. The implication is stunning. When we fully comprehend the truth of being in Christ, it will revolutionise our thinking and the gospel will function powerfully in us and for us. Because there may be times that we, we feel guilty. We've sinned, we've done something, we've offended, we've, whatever it may be. You may have come here this morning feeling guilty. But because of the gospel, if we are in Christ, we will never, ever be condemned. And so God wants us to live in the good of that. Not, not yes, I know we're not going to be condemned. We, we, we read the scriptures, therefore there are, now there's no condemnation. How often do you feel condemned? Okay, how often? I think if we're truthful, all of us, we could raise our hands at this point. We could feel it. But as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you know, when we feel things, don't stay in the feelings, speak truth to ourselves. So when you may feel condemned, you need to say, there is now no condemnation for me. I feel guilty. But guilt is different from condemnation. There is no condemnation, both now and for all eternity. We've just, we've just broken bread together. Jesus drunk that cup dry. There's no, there's no more wrath. There's no more punishment. There's nothing for us to ever meet, however sinful we've been, if we are in Christ Jesus. So let's not listen to our feelings, but when these things come, speak these gospel truths to ourselves. Therefore, it makes it more significant rather than just saying there, there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation. But why? There's no condemnation because we're in Christ Jesus. Romans, our third one here, Romans 8 verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Notice those words, also, and along with him. They speak of something that grows out of the gospel. When we see the connection between the truth of the gospel itself, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's the, that's the gospel. We can rely on this gracious God and Father to give us all things that we need. Now, for some of you who may have been reading New Morning Mercies today, Paul Tripp actually, and I hadn't planned to say this, but actually talked very strongly about the difference between need and want. God will give us what we need. The trouble is we, we throw on what we want and we turn what we want into a need. But he will give us the gospel truth concerning God's gracious provision of, is that there is provision for all that we 
need for our sanctification. All that we need for strengthening our daily trust in God's provision for our lives. The Father who did not spare his Son but gave himself up for us will graciously give us all things that we need, not what we want. We receive daily all that we need and we receive it in grace from a gracious Father. He is a gracious Father. And it was that graciousness. He did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. When we connect truths that flow from and are shaped by the gospel, and we meditate on those truths, our minds will be renewed as Paul speaks of in Romans 12. And as a result, we can experience peace. We can, we can know we can know that the peace of God, we can know there's nothing that will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We can be free from condemnation. We can find our assurance in God. The enemy, Satan's accuser of the brethren, he's going to come and hit you at these very points. Almost as soon as I've uttered them, he's going to try and rob them from you. When you mess up, well, maybe there's a bit of condemnation. Am I really saved? We'll find... We can be free, live in the good of being free from condemnation and find the assurance that God will provide for all our needs, both spiritually and physically. But not only is the gospel to shape our thinking, there are massive behavioural implications of the gospel as well. The gospel is not only to renew our minds, but to inform our conduct too. The scriptures provide many examples of this gospel informed living. I've just stuck to, uh, to six this morning. There, there are many. Gospel behaviour is the connection in the, Bi- the Bible makes between the gospel and our behaviour. In Galatians 2.14, Paul rebukes Peter for the conduct that was not in line with the truth of the gospel. What Paul was, Peter was saying there was not in line with the gospel. And, the, and it was the gospel that was at stake in that argument. If, I mean, if you go to Galatians 2 and uh, 14 and read about it, the gospel was at stake. And in Philippians 1.27, Paul urges believers to conduct yourselves in a manner of the wor- worthy of the gospel. In other words, one of the ways the gospel must fu- function is by informing us in specific behaviours. As we read our Bibles, I encourage us to read our Bibles with an eye toward detecting these connections. As I said, I just want to pick out six this morning. The first one is going to be a bit longer than the others, so don't, don't worry, because the first one, first one, you'll see why in a moment. Ephesians 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, Tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgives you. Forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This exhortation to forgive in the way we've been forgiven is probably one of the most important areas of our Christian lives. Probably one of the most challenges. I read of a pastor who was counselling a married couple and clearly the the, 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 the husband had sinned against his wife in a specific way, a significant way. And the wife said to the pastor and to her husband, 
that she would only forgive him if he promised to never do it again. The pastor wisely thought for a few seconds rather than jumping in, which I probably would have done, but he was wiser than me, and then asked the question to the wife, what would happen? What would happen if God held you to the same standard? Think about it. What would happen? How many times have you said to a friend, work colleague, spouse, parents, children, well, I'll forgive you if you, you promise not to do it again? It's not the gospel. What would happen if God says, this morning I forgive you, providing you will not sin again? We're in trouble. We're in deep trouble. Points to the gospel. And it is probably one of the hardest of all commandments to obey. There are many challenges in scripture, but this, I think, is one of the most challenging of all. Because it, it roots at so many things in our lives. It roots at, at pride, pride being the biggest one. Um, wrong heart attitudes. John Stott writes in The Cross of Christ this, that to live under the cross means that every aspect of, Christian, of the Christian community's life is shaped and coloured by it. Now, I read this definition of forgiveness from Thomas Watson in the Body of Divinity. Some of you students will have heard of Thomas Watson, a great uh, Puritan. It was a Puritan, wasn't he, Matt? <laughs> uh, we, we, we forgive when we strive against all thoughts of revenge. When we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish well to them, to grieve at their calamities, to pray for them, to seek reconciliation with them, and show ourselves ready on all, ready on all occasions to relieve them. Is that what I do when I've been hurt? Somebody's offended me? And somebody's done something against me. Am I looking for, well, they'll get their cup of, comeuppance. There's karma. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll have their problems. When you, but we wish them well. We grieve at their calamities. We pray for them. We seek reconciliation with them. You know, John Stott says, unforgiveness. <laughs> I found this particularly challenging. Simple line. Unforgiveness is a symptom of gospel amnesia and should be a concern for all of us. It's a symptom of gospel amnesia and should be a concern for us. To forgive and to ask forgiveness is a costly exercise. To forgive is costly, can be costly. To ask for forgiveness, I would encourage us all to do this. It's not really good enough just to say, um, uh, forgive me. It's to ask, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? It puts the other person in a place where they are challenged by that. And it puts you in a position of humility having to ask for that. It's a way of bringing about reconciliation. And all authentic Christian peacemaking will exhibit the love and the justice and the pain 
of the cross. Secondly, 2 Corinthians 6, 18, 20. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin is a, a sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Now in Christ, and though we're not our own, we've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. He's saying it's not our body. We've been bought with a price. And you sin against his own body. You sin against yourself, but sin against the body of Christ. It's a significant sin. It is against your body and it's against the body of Christ. Because you do not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You are not your own. Sometimes I ask the question, I asked it this morning, hands up if you own a house, television, car, bicycle. If you're truly saved, we can't put our hands up for any of those things. We steward those things, but we don't own them because we are not owned. And sexual immorality, unlike other sins we sin against, is a sin against our own body and the body of Christ. And that body is owned by God and created for his glory. Third area, third scripture, Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The gospel is that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And we've come to understand that marriage is to reveal and demonstrate the relationship between Christ and the church. Therefore, therefore the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. The same love that Christ loved the church. It was not eros or filial, but it was agape. It was sacrificial love. And so that's how those who are husbands here were to love our wives. The gospel is that Christ loved the church. The implication is because of Christ's relationship to the church, husband's relationship to the wife, then the husband is to love the wife. That's Christ loved the church. There's so much we could say on all of these, but if you have any questions on it, I want to try and help, you, help us see how we can correct, connect uh, gospel, the gospel with our behaviour. For 2 Corinthians 8, 7 to 9. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Paul is talking earlier in this chapter about giving. He's talking about giving to the church, giving to the poor, giving to the needs of others. And he's saying here the gospel, the gospel is that the, here is that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, he became poor so that we, by his poverty, may have become rich. Paul says excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all honesties. And out of our love for you, for you also excel in the generosity towards others. Five, Romans fifteen seven. 
I love this, and we've been singing about it this morning. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Christ has welcomed us. That is the gospel. That is what we sang about earlier. We sang about being welcomed. Welcome, what was it? Into, uh, by, I can't remember the words, but by being our, what's the words? The song was, you forgot. Sorry? Welcome to your own, that's right. We're welcomed by God. Thought that. We're welcomed as his own. Who's his own? Jesus. We're joint heirs with Christ. We've been welcomed as his own. God has accepted you and I just as we are. Just as we are. He's included us into his family just as we are. Now we're joint heirs with Christ. So Paul says that's the gospel. Now, now that's how we should welcome others. We shouldn't be welcoming others because, you know what, you know, it's a bit like the Rotary Club. We're a good bunch of people. We want to be kind and nice to people. Plenty of people in the world do. But we welcome, we include, we accept each other with a gospel imperative, if you like, because we've been welcomed. The gospel is we've been welcomed. We've been accepted. And so Paul, Paul says, that's how we should welcome others. To even to, to accept other believers as they are, even when we might, be, we might disagree with them on certain points. But we'll be, to be inclusive with them as brothers and sisters who are in Christ. Sixth, Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, or other versions translate this as, in view of God mercy, God's mercies. And then Paul goes into 12 to 16. In view of those mercies, how we should be to one another. He starts off with the gospel and then he proceeds through 12 through 16. Talking about how we are to treat one another with love. Calvin says, if you're not affected by the because of mercy we would have hearts of stone. If you're struggling, if you read, read those, those scriptures in 12 through 16 and you're, you're struggling to do those things, focus back on the mercy that you've received. Focus back on his mercy towards us. Let that affect you. Realising just how merciful God has been to you and to me. He has been massively merciful. Massively merciful. We, we, we probably don't realise half the sins that we commit. The things that go on in our hearts and our minds. He's been massively merciful to us. We sing, don't we? Our sins they are many, but his mercy is more. So much more. And if your heart is... Uh, uh, not affected by that scripture, then focus on it, go back to it, meditate on it. Paul is concerned here that our response is in view of God's mercy and not in moralism, on changed behaviour or self-improvement, but a heart 
changed and motivated by an awareness of God's mercy to us. You see, if we don't do that, if we don't do that, if we don't make these gospel connections, we could just be, our behaviour could be just moralism. Learn to do, that's the right thing. This is, this is as good a book as any on how to live a life. Yeah, I will see it as a bit of a, Bible, a, bit of a handbook for life and instruction. We become moralists. That's not how God wants us to live. When we connect the gospel of behaviour flows from the gospel itself, it becomes the motivation for our behaviour. And then we can begin to understand that the power for change does not simply lie in our own power. It lies in Christ. Were it not for the gospel working in our lives, we would not be able to flee sexual immorality, to forgive others, to love our wives correctly, or to be generous with our money and time, to welcome others and have our minds renewed. The gospel needs to be working in our lives and we need to make those connections because it will strengthen it will strengthen those truths. You may still hold to that without making the connection, but it'll strengthen. In the time of difficulty, it'll strengthen you. When you're able to make these truths or these behaviours connected to the gospel. The gospel and the cross of Christ must remain firm at the centre of our Christian lives so they can shape our understanding of gospel truth. The gospel is to be the very basis and motivation for the way we live and the way we behave. Without the gospel, our minds would not be rightly renewed and our behaviour would not change or it would become moralist. Therefore, it's the gospel that must be proclaimed as a reason or motivation for change because without the gospel, we will be in danger of becoming moralists. But with it, but with it, we have the power by God's grace to live in the good of these gospel-shaped truths and live lives that reflect Christ and his glorious gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much this morning for the gospel, for the truth that Christ died for our sins. Christ died for my sin, for your sin. And Father, would you help us to grow in making the connections as we read the scriptures between the gospel and what we believe and the way we behave. Father, this morning we thank you for the life-changing effect of the gospel. And Lord, would you give us grace to reflect more and more on the character and the nature of our Saviour and Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that in every way we will grow up to be mature in him and bring glory to his name, to be reflections of him in this world that we live. In the precious name of Jesus we ask. Amen.